So uh, a week ago on Sunday, the uh, Total One DMZ International Peace Marathon was held near the demilitarized zone in Gangwon province. It's the only marathon that crosses the civilian passage restriction line on that DMZ. And His Excellency James Choi, Australian ambassador to South Korea, took part as a runner and I'm very pleased to say is this morning's very special Chuseok person. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've got to start with the marathon question. Um, it's not every day I meet a fellow marathon runner, but I, I, I feel embarrassed uh, comparing myself with you because you've done the biggest ones like Boston, where you actually have to qualify with an extra fast time to get in, right? That's correct. Boston is the holy grail for all marathoners. It's the marathon that everyone wants to do. So what's your best time? My best marathon time is 2 hours 57 minutes, so I've cracked the three-hour mark. But with three minutes to spare. Three minutes to spare. You must have been so happy. Uh, as I said, I can now die happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's behind that love of marathon running? Did it start young or something you discovered later? No. When I was at university and school, I loved team sports. So I wasn't really into running as such. But once I started work, I found out that organizing sports or team sports or being part of team sports became increasingly hard. And so I took up running. And I naturally wanted to test myself, uh, see how far I can go, how fast I can go, and I took up marathon running. But also it's when I lived in New York, I saw the New York Marathon being run. It actually went past the place that I lived in, Upper East Side, and mm. I saw all the runners there, and I thought, hey, I can do it. Yeah. So it was a challenge, but I find that training for a marathon, the whole preparation of um, preparing for a marathon, it's very useful in terms of motivating oneself, but also... The skills of trying to overcome slumps, motivating yourself, setting a target, it's all relevant to daily life and also to work as well. So I value the skills that I've learned in marathon running. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes think back to that and di- when, when needing to dig deep. Yes. And uh, well, your time, as I said, suggests that y- you're not just a hard worker. There's obviously a natural flair there as well. Um Let's talk about the DMZ aspects of it, though. Being a diplomat, having Korean heritage, um, what was it like to run in that part of the world, uh, a product of the Korean War, the DMZ? It reminded me that the Korean Peninsula is still divided, and that is a tragedy. I think when you go to the DMZ any time, you realise that the Cold War, in many respects, is alive and well. But it also reminded me that South Korea has developed so much And the stark contrast between North Korea and South Korea is really in stark contrast when you go to the DMZ. And Korea has now become the 11th largest economy in the world, a very prosperous society, a very innovative and creative society. And yet on the north, we still have a country that's quite impoverished and focused on developing nuclear weapons and developing its missiles. So the stark contrast is what I um, came away with when I visited the DMZ, obviously during the marathon, but also when I visited DMZ DMZ in the past. Um, We've had the honour of speaking to at least one of your predecessors, but um, you are the first Australian ambassador to Seoul of Korean descent since the country's formed diplomatic ties, which is back in 1961. Um, Does that offer you an advantage, would you suggest? I would think that it does provide an advantage because I speak Korean My parents were Korean. I grew up in a Korean family. I still have many Korean relatives here in Seoul. So I understand the Korean psyche. I understand many aspects of Korean culture. 
So it's easy for me to immerse myself in the Korean environment and understand what the way Koreans think. So it gives me an advantage in understanding what my counterparts come from. Um, I've got a good understanding of Korean history. Uh, so it gives me a natural advantage, I think, in understanding the Korean people. But at the same time, I think it's not just my Korean background. It's As a diplomat, you have to know the world. You have to know the globe and the trends that are impacting on not just Korea, but the region and also in Australia. So I think it's my, not just my Korean heritage, but also my broader international background that lets me, I think, work pretty effectively here in Seoul. Well, we've been looking into your background, the education side as well, which is worth mentioning, because um, for an ambassador, I guess, when you look at economics and law at Sydney University, that's not particularly unexpected, but a master's degree in literature. Mm-hmm. Frankly, when I went to university, I did a lot of things that interested me, but it didn't really provide a natural career progression because I didn't want to be an economist. I didn't want to become a lawyer, but there were things that interested me. But what I found at university that really interested me was the idea of why certain countries succeeded, why certain countries failed, why certain countries seemed to have so much promise, but then also in the end really decline. Uh, So I'm naturally interested in why certain countries were successful. What are the reasons? And uh, it's part of the research that I did, but also the, the, the readings that I did. I studied a lot of literature, philosophy, economics. Um, that led me naturally into the foreign service. Mm. I applied for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and, and I was actually lucky enough to get into the graduate program. Um, I was naturally interested in international relations and why the world worked the way it does. Seoul must have uh, changed tremendously (laughs) since you worked here in 1995 to 1997, uh, if I'm correct on those dates. Um, It's it's been nearly a year, actually, of this stint, but I guess you can still reflect on on just how much that change occurred. Seoul is unrecognisable in many respects. I was here 20 years ago, and it was still at a time when the markets weren't open. It was very hard to get international products. Um, there was still an active black market for imported products around the US base. I can't recognise parts of Seoul now. And one of the most fascinating things that I, I do, along with my wife, is to wander around uh, the places that we used to go to 20 years ago, places like Hongdae, Apgujong, Iwa University. And it's incredible how much Korea has changed. The increase in sophistication, the the culture, the architecture, Korea has totally transformed. It's gone from a country that simply copied what's happened in other countries, and now it's actually reaching a point where it's creating and leading ideas and innovation. Yeah. Uh, it is an absolutely amazing and vibrant city. You can't, you kind of have to create, don't you, when you're when you're ending up in a position of leadership. Mm. Uh, certain conglomerates come to mind, but when, yes. when, you know, once you establish yourself in that position, yes, yes. Um, but. Um, you met your wife, um, actually, who's also Korean-Australian, uh, many years back, um, and you just got married last November and came here together. Has that been a major change for you, the marriage part of that equation? Well, marriage is a big change for any person. Uh, it's a big step to take. But I met Joanne 20 years ago, in fact, at the Australian Embassy when I was here. But it's fantastic. We've come back to where it all started from. It's like the circle of life coming yeah. from to the point where it all started. 
Um, as I mentioned, we're enjoying re-engaging with what's happened in Seoul in the 20 years that I've been away. But uh, my wife, Joanne, has actually been here in, in Seoul for um, half the time that I've been away. She worked at the Australian Embassy, continued to work at the Australian Embassy uh, from 1996 to around about 2004. So right. all up about eight years working in various areas right. in the Australian Embassy. But marriage is fantastic. As I said, I love exploring parts of Seoul with my wife, rediscovering the areas that we frequented previously and and to explore how much Seoul has changed. And as I said, it's like coming back full circle to the point where it all started from. Yeah, that's lovely to hear. married life is fantastic. Romance is certainly still alive in this studio. Um, (laughs) But... um, Let's talk about different kinds of relationships, trade relationships, very important uh, between Korea and Australia. Um, with that FTA taking effect in 2014, it's arguably been strengthening the relationship as well with the development of uh, MICTA, uh, Mexico, Indonesia, Korea, Turkey and Australia coming together, middle powers, um, breaking up that mould of uh, international uh, organisations mm-hmm. sometimes uh, can be a bit US and China-led, can't it? So um, how do you see these types of relationships going forward? In the future, um, in foreign policy terms, we're facing a very much more uncertain international environment. Some of the pillars of the international system are slowly fraying at the edges. Uh, We have an international system that was built on the predominance of US power, which underpinned the international system. But now we're seeing many more players rise. We're seeing the rise of China. We're seeing the rise of the ASEANs. We're seeing increasing um, power utilised by non-state actors. I think what we're seeing is then a need for like-minded countries that have shared interests to cooperate closely to map a way through this very uncertain time. And that's why you see the likes of MICTA emerging. MICTA is a group of mid-sized, like-minded countries with power in their respective regions, and we come together to cooperate on the rules of the road, how we can augment the rules of the road to advance our own interests. So in the future, I see more of these types of alliances, semi-loose coalitions forming, and Korea and Australia, frankly, will be important players in this loose coalition of like-minded countries because Korea is the 11th largest economy, Australia's the 13th largest economy. We're both democracies. We both share values such as commitment to the rule of law and free trade. Mm-hmm. I think we need to cooperate more, much more closely in the future to navigate our way through these uncertain times. Well, well said. Um, but on a very specific note, is there anything particularly from Australia, food, products, technology, culture, that you'd like to see um, introduced or, or better established here in this country? What I'd like to do is try to raise the profile of some of Australia's key achievements into the Korean market. I think most Koreans are aware of tourism, food, Australia's great environment and lifestyle. But not many people would know that Australia's got significant capabilities in other areas, such as science and research. In fact, Australia's had 16 Nobel Prize winners. One of the most recent Nobel Prize winners was in physics. So it underlines Australia's capabilities, especially in, in research and, and, and scientific development. In fact, Wi-Fi was invented in Australia. Mm. It's a very un, um, un, not a very uh, well-known fact. Uh, the other thing I'd like to un- underline is that Australians are everywhere. Um, we have talented workers and, and, and people, skilled people throughout the world. And in fact, in Seoul, it's quite amazing that 
Most of the CEOs of all the major oil and gas companies are Australian. Most of the general managers of the big five-star hotels are Australian. It underlines the flexibility of the Australian workforce, the ability to understand Korean culture, immerse themselves in the local environment, work with the Korean uh, corporate sector, but also really work with Koreans to lift the standards to international levels in those very difficult areas of multinationals, but also in hospitality. So Australia basically is uh, a very internationally competitive country. And also, I think you'll see more Australians here in Korea in the future. Must say, one thing that I always admire about the Australian expat community I've met here is, you know, they get things done. They can be very serious, but they also know to to relax and and, and have fun. I I know it's cliched, but it's basically true in most examples that I've witnessed. Well, it's... uh it's almost a cliche, but Australians work hard, but also play hard. Yeah, well, again, <laughs> I, I, I've witnessed it. You didn't even need to mention wine and beef there, but that's something we, <laughs> we get a lot of from Australia too. Well, uh, I'm out there all the time promoting Australian beef and wine. In fact, if you look at my Instagram account, you'll see many promotions that I've done. Yeah, in your own living room and kitchen. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, but coming full circle, we started with your marathon running as a sports fan. Um, what's your expectation for the upcoming PyeongChang 2018 Winter Olympics? We don't actually hear much about Australia, do we, in winter sports? Not too much, not compared with the summer sports. Uh, I will have to admit that Australia is not a Winter Olympics powerhouse. We are very good at certain events, um, such as moguls and ski jumping, but we're not fantastic at winter sports. As I said, we won a few gold medals, but not great at it. But we still compete. We're very active and we've got a very vibrant support base for winter sports. But what would you say to teams around the world? There'd been talk of France maybe even considering pulling out recently, although then that was uh, revised um, as as being somewhat premature, that story, and perhaps uh, inaccurate. But what would you say to any team around the world that might be feeling like they don't want to take part because of inter-Korean security risks? I think the ultimate decision to either participate or not participate really is up to the individual teams. I don't think as Australian ambassador I can tell any other country's team to make a decision one way or the other. But certainly from Australia's perspective, we want to fully support the Korean government as they prepare for the PyeongChang Olympics. And I know for a fact that our Winter Olympics team is very much keen and eager to be here and start participating and competing at the PyeongChang Olympics. And from the Australian government's perspective, we'll continue to do all we can to support international community efforts to lower tensions and resolve these issues, security issues on the Korean Peninsula peacefully. Well, I know you probably can't say it, but I can say that France probably wouldn't appreciate it or any other country probably wouldn't appreciate it if people started pulling out due to terrorist risks, for example. And, and, and you know, it's obviously been a lot of talk on the inter-Korean front, not nearly so much action. James Choi, Australian ambassador to South Korea. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for being this morning's person. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.